This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 246, June 15, 1991. This evening, Otto Scott and I are discussing with Walter Lindsay his trip to India and his observations of the situation in that vast subcontinent, an area of conflicting cultures and really warring peoples. Would you like to continue, Walter, with your observations? Yes, let me begin by telling a story of shopping on Mahatma Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi Boulevard. I'm in downtown Bangalore. Um, I went there, and um, I was going in to buy various gifts and things like that. And um, I ran into um, a small child, a very, very small child, holding a very malnourished-looking infant. And um, as usual with the beggars, the child made certain hand signals where he takes the right hand and they wave it up and down and back and forth and they say certain words and they bow their head in a certain way and some sort of ritual bowing and um, not being quite certain um, what to do because I um, had observed by then that giving money to beggars meant simply that they asked for more money. So I decided to go ahead and walk past this person and I walked into the place and another beggar had seen me come in and so this other beggar was... Um, a boy, maybe um, 12 or so. One leg was the normal leg, but the other leg dangled to just below the knee. And he went around on his hands and legs, with his rear end high up in the air and his damaged leg kind of dangling there. And um, he waited outside the shop where I was for a considerable length of time. And, and I went out there and went into another shop. And finally, the shopkeeper drove him away. And um, another misshapen person waited outside another shop that I stepped in for a moment. Um, I was struck by a number of things by my interactions with the beggars. One, they didn't seem to have any sort of gratitude. The various times I did give money, they never thanked me for anything. In fact, they often said, oh, please can you, and then they named some bigger number, more rupees that they wanted as well. And they seemed to make um, a display of showing the very worst of what they had. Then, um, their handicaps. Exactly. They used that very prominently in order to try to get money. I only saw one Indian give money to any of the beggars, and um, that was one of the drivers that I had. Um, there was a beggar woman, and um, this particular driver had different mannerisms, and he struck me differently. And I don't know what was different about him, but he behaved significantly differently than most of the other people I gave. He also actually gave money to a beggar, the only person that I ever saw besides a Westerner doing that. Well, somebody must, because there wouldn't be so many of them. Mm -hmm. That's true. Um, I saw one beggar being driven around on a cart by um, a perfectly well person, and, um, uh, and they tried to get money for the person's handicap, and apparently their business was driving around with this, being pushed around in this cart or pushing the cart. Well, it's a, uh, I hate to use the word, but it's a profession over there. Maybe you should call it a trade, since they didn't go to school. But... Uh, it's a definite occupation. And I also understand that many of those handicaps were the result of special mutilation yes. to create a beggar from early childhood on. 
That, incidentally, was once done in Europe. Yes. Balzac has a novel about it, I remember, where this child was given an artificial smile, but he couldn't, he couldn't change it. It was an eternal smile. I did see some disfigurements there that I have never seen before, shrunken limbs, <coughs> things like that. Uh-huh. There was also a great deadness to that. Um, I talked to one Westerner on my way out of India. Uh, this person had spent about four months on seven different trips there. Um, an American? An, well, actually a Canadian. Canadian. And he described um, a, a, a cycle that he went through on his various travels for business there. Um, at first he gave lots of money. And then over time he became very dead. And the low period for this man was um, there was a, a millionaire apparently getting into his Mercedes who had to step right past a beggar woman, a leper, who had her legs gone beneath the knees and her arms gone above the elbows, standing side by side on the sidewalk there. And he didn't notice her, and she was begging. And the it, not seeing this, this misery there and thinking it's a very normal part of life, I found that I began to go through a very uh, a cycle of, of kind of deadening at that point, and then I began thinking about the scriptures some there, and, and realizing that this deadening process occurring in myself was not, it did not fit with um, uh, the scripture. Um, I wasn't able to resolve that um, by the time I left, but this particular man that I mentioned who passed uh, uh, the beggar, who saw the beggar woman and the millionaire with the Mercedes, at that point he said that he could have... Um, Somebody could have died at his feet, and he wouldn't have even noticed at that point the kind of deadness he picked up there. Well, yes. There are so many. They go in crowds in some parts of the Orient. You pick up a whole entourage. If you give money to one, four more come. Or more than that. And I suppose it's somewhat similar in any large crowded city. You reduce your area of observation. We pass beggars in the streets ourselves. We have beggars. And uh, I don't really know why we do have beggars, because we certainly spend enough on welfare. The government spends enormous amounts of money we still have the homeless, we still have beggars. And we turn off. The sites aren't as horrendous as they are in India. We don't have lepers. I was fascinated that throughout all of this there was um, um, a lot of rhetoric about helping the poor and that that was um, a stated goal of the political candidates. Uh-huh. Well, it's also true that the great mass of voters are extremely poor and, um, in general, highly uneducated. Um, and so that was good politically. Um, but they also carried through with that. You've mentioned some about, um, uh, the last time we discussed about um, uh, tax rates soaking the rich. Um, apparently, if you make more than 2,000 rupees a month or so, month or so, the tax rates, the tax rates rise um, to very high levels. Well, 2,000 rupees at the moment is $100 a month U.S. 
So well, they give you a surcharge if you get over that. That's right. And so what tends to happen is there are, is that there are government schemes. You invest your money in the government schemes, and then you get it when you retire. It's tax free. Um, I'm not certain, but it's certainly advantageous to invest in the government schemes. Something like TV, treasury bills mm-hmm. or IRAs. Or IRAs. That assumes the integrity of the government. Yes, we That's do. what I thought. <laughs> we do. However, apparently from the various people I talked with, it's a very common practice to invest extra money. Um, that way in, in government schemes, as they talked about it. Did you see any factories? Any signs of industry? The company that I worked with did build computers, and so I did see their assembly center. Uh-huh. Um, I met Where did they get the components? That's a good question. I don't believe they make them themselves. They perhaps just an assembly plant. That's the way that that's what they called it. Yes. Good point. Some other things that made business extremely difficult there. Um, they, they, if they have the goal of improving life in the villages, they have a lot of enormous economic hurdles to making that happen. How do they plan to go about that? I never figured that out, except by government programs. They talk a lot about it. They talk a lot. And yet, as far as producing, there are some very significant problems that these people face. Calcutta is one of the great business centers apparently in India. Unfortunately, the power goes out several times a day in the summer, which makes it a little difficult to do anything um, with a computer, for example. It certainly would. (laughs) It wipes everything out, doesn't it? Yes, indeed. Um, In fact, while I was teaching there, um, the power was out an entire morning, and I um, that day had planned to use overhead foils on the overhead. So um, I talked a lot that morning and drew lots of pictures on the blackboard. It made life very interesting that way. Well, of course, we have environmentalists who are against power plants. They drive to the demonstrations against them. Driving. And they have electric guitars with their protest songs. I didn't run into too much of that there in India, but they certainly did have some big problems with their power systems there. Um, Something else that is conspiring against industry and the welfare of the people um, is the water problem. I read briefly an article um, about the water shortages that they're having there at the moment. Well, another reason why the people might have been very interested about the Persian War and about what happened there is that apparently the burning of the oil wells in Kuwait may shift the monsoons further to the south. And there are various areas where I've never seen reservoirs quite that low. I've seen Lake Shasta recently, and I've seen other reservoirs in California that are quite low. But this reservoir was significantly lower than anything I've seen here. Well, it's hard for me to believe that man can do anything to change weather patterns. I can understand a change of weather patterns as a result of the volcano, mm-hmm. but a fire, even as an extensive a fire as 500 oil wells in Kuwait, I can see discoloration over a large period, but I really can't see mm-hmm. alteration of the weather pattern. 
And I did notice <clears throat> that in some of the third world countries, they're, they get very superstitious and they get all kinds of ideas. I was in Caracas during the rainy season and it rained and rained and rained. And I asked the maid, my father's maid, uh, why it was raining so much. She said, the moon is cracked. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was as good an explanation as any other, I suppose. <laughs> but the monsoon theory sounds to me that way. I think they're fearful. Certainly if they have a drought, they have a lot to be afraid of. Because that earlier, when we talked before, you read from the paper this politician giving a very emotional speech about water. I've heard some emotional speeches about water in California recently. Mm -hmm. Well, God does seem to be conspiring there. Did I, you, excuse me, go ahead. I um, found out that in one area, the water tables had dropped from 160 feet down to 400 feet in the last three or four years. What about Christians? Did you encounter any... I saw two churches and one Bible mission, but I did not run into any. Mm -hmm. Well, you did. <clears throat> you told us earlier that <clears throat> the Hindu politicians said that the white man or the Westerner couldn't impose his religion. Mm -hmm. And of course, there was never an attempt to impose Christianity on India. The English preferred to rule through the native rulers. There were some who became Christian, but I think by attraction more than mm -hmm. anything else. And at no time was the native religion ever forbidden, although some practices like sati were stopped. But I understood recently that uh, some of the some some Indian men are burning their wives again. They're not waiting for them to die, either. They're just mm -hmm. burying them mm -hmm. so they can get another dowry, another wife. Hmm. You did, did you, you didn't see that? No, I did not see no. any of that, no. You wouldn't, but uh, they didn't have anything in the paper about it. Do they carry crime news in the papers? Assassinations were mentioned. Um, my perspective may be a little skewed in that area because some of the elections were going on and that dominated quite a bit of the news. Uh -huh. I did notice um, that one of the people that I worked with who was supposed to take me to uh, a naval officer's mess for a special dinner they were giving. Um, I don't know why there was a naval officer's mess because there's no significant body of water nearby. But we had to ride on his uh, motorcycle in order to get there and his helmet had been stolen that day. And so I did notice that. And there are various signs about being careful and reporting people to the police in order to reduce crime. But I personally felt much safer there than I have in many places. I didn't feel like I was going to be attacked. But I also felt that if I left something, it probably wouldn't be there when I got back. Yes. But uh, some of our cities are dangerous. At night, particularly. Did you go out at night? Around the grounds of the hotel, but I never went outside those at night. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently, if I had been out right after Rajiv Gandhi was assassinated, I would have been in significant trouble. 
You mentioned earlier that Westerners had to hide right after. Yes, Russ said there was a anti-Western. I don't know why. Yes, I read somewhere that uh, after the assassination, there was a lot of anti-Western sentiment, just a general expression of hatred. So Westerners had to stay in hiding for a time. Well, it's like Mexico. If it rains in Mexico, it's our fault. <laughs> Perhaps the whole third world is that way. I suspect it is. We do enough things wrong, but uh, in a world that is ruled by envy, we are the nation that attracts the greatest envy. I was interested the other day that uh, in the Soviet Union, no country in the world is more damned than the United States as being a greedy, materialistic power. And the overwhelming majority of the people there... Want to come here. Want to come here. Yes. <laughs> yes. And the problem is that they do come here and they maintain the same arguments. Yes. Very true. I long for the day when some foreign statesman will get up and say something of gratitude to the people of the United States. Yes. I have never heard it. No. No, when I was a child we were referred to by Europe as Uncle Shylock. And it has not improved since then. This is not to say our foreign policy hasn't been full of stupidities, but the stupidities have been at the expense of the American people and to the benefit of the peoples of the world on whom we've poured out so much wealth. Well, that's the reason for our deficits. They're just about equal. Our foreign expenditures just about equal our deficits. Mm -hmm. It's uh, amazing that in all these years I've watched this, nobody has ever written an article about it. I would, but I know nobody would publish it. Mm -hmm. Did you see any entertainments while you were there? Was it all business? I didn't see too many entertainments. Um, I spent enough time preparing for my work that I didn't get too much chance to get out. But I did notice that there were a great many films that were shown. That, that seemed to be a very common occupation, going to the cinema. Mm -hmm. And um, of late, it's been VCRs. But quite a few people that I talked to have been um, buying VCRs and spent a lot of time at home watching various movies. So, were the movies uh, Hindu movies, uh, foreign films? There were some foreign films. There were um, uh, the Godzilla sort of films. There Godzilla, were, uh, yes. I saw Godzilla once. I was fascinated. <laughs> there was one Yeti that was advertised quite a bit. Um, there were films that were shown at various points in the U.S. that were the current runs that were being shown in the theaters. And there were quite a few Hindi films as well. I don't imagine TV is common apart from the hotels and 
the wealthy people there, is it? The um, prop. Well, given the housing conditions that I saw and the number of people living in little grass huts with no power and no water, and um, and I'm sure the rain would probably have made it through the hut. I think you must be right. Mm-hmm. It was a, it's an upper class thing, mm-hmm. but much desired, from what I could tell. What about the other people in the hotel? Were there many foreigners? Most of the people who were at the hotel looked like um, wealthy Indian businessmen. I see. There were a few foreigners. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think India is really a tourist place, is it? Most people that I talked to... Were there on business. Yeah. And there were a few people that I met who um, had been there, but I didn't see many tourists there. It seemed to be almost entirely business. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a very picturesque country. Some of the photographs and whatnot, slides and whatnot of India, the Taj Mahal and all that, just uh, fascinating geographically. Well, I think the amount of travel has declined. We don't have uh, as much money as the people to spend. It used to be there were numerous guided tours to India, but I think the social disturbances the world over are causing Americans to think twice before they travel. Well, we're told not to appear like Americans when we do travel. And I don't know how we can manage that. Uh, then you said it was a 20-hour flight from San Francisco. That's right. That's a long way. It's it a, lot a long way. I recall some years ago, someone who went to Russia, and he did everything to be inconspicuous, uh, he wore one of those Russian uh, fur hats and so on and so forth and uh, uh, got a great Russian coat. It was winter. But he was recognized at once for an unusual reason. His shoes did not squeak. <laughs> Everywhere they went, they knew he was an American at once. <laughs> I told you that friend of mine who went to Mexico from San Francisco, who had previously lived in South America and spoke Spanish. And he went with his wife and daughter to Mexico City just for a vacation. He went while he was there to a barber shop to get a haircut. And the barber was delighted to discover that he could speak English uh, or Spanish. And they had a chat. And the barber finally asked him if, how he was enjoying Mexico. And my friend said it was fine. And he said, are you alone? And he said, no, I have my wife with me. And the barber said, oh, well, life is finished. <laughs> yes. One of the most interesting areas for tourists to go to, one of the most beautiful areas, is the Kashmir Valley. And that's been one of the most violence-torn. So that may have cut down on tourism. Also, I was in a rather out-of-the-way area. I was not in Delhi at all because I got sick. And um, and so I missed what tourism there might have been. So my perspective may be a little skewed that way.
Still, you were dealing with some computer people mm -hmm. who uh, couldn't be in very large supply in India. At least I don't get that impression. No. So you're with a rather advanced group. That's true. Was their English good? I had to work in order to follow what many of them said. It was probably more visual and mental than it was speaking then. Usually, in order to understand them, I had to walk over next to them, lean over, and watch their mouth and their face as closely as possible, and then I could begin to understand what they were saying. And then I'd have to repeat it back to them to make sure I got it with some of them. Heavily accent. Many of them, yes. But they knew the terms. Yes, that's, they did. How would you rate them as... Uh were they going to individually run the machines, the computer, or were they themselves managers, or what? The people I was speaking with were um, uh, people who were to provide expertise for, the, for the, this company's customers. I see. So they were the people who were supposed to develop expertise to help the customers run their systems. Right. And some fascinating things um, I noticed that way. Um, this um, may, means a lot to me, but it may not mean too much to most people. That um, the largest system that they'd ever seen um, was 300 megabytes. In other words, 300 million pieces of information there. That's very small. I'm used to dealing with things where I deal with multiple billions of pieces of information. So an order of magnitude larger, at least, for, for, to be a large system. This was the largest system these, these people could imagine. Um, How many years behind would you say that would indicate? I saw many of the kinds of attitudes that I, um, as I read articles, that I would have seen um, maybe early 70s. Early 70s. And this is, the, this is 91. For example, um, there was a great bias towards um, redoing work if a problem happened, rather than buying equipment that would keep them from losing information. Mm -hmm. They were willing to spend a day or two retyping, rekeying in information when they could have very easily protected themselves from losing that. Power outages mean frequently mm -hmm. lost information. That's right. What do they do with a power outage? It wipes you out, doesn't it? You have to start again? Um, in general... Did they have surge protection uh, equipment? Um, I, I never saw any. You didn't see any. But most systems are smart enough that they can recover in general if there's a power outage. But unfortunately, power outages mean that you do lose data fairly often. Sure. And these are the fellows who... The troubleshooters that you were talking to. That's right. They must have been having trouble or they wouldn't have sent for you. Um, part of my goal was to give them a competitive edge. Um, this, the particular software I was discussing with them has been um, in common circulation in the States for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. It's just being introduced to their marketplace. I see. <clears throat> so it's really a new product area. It's very new to them, yes. And was their company a large company? $1.8 billion. That's, that's pretty good size. Yeah, that's $80 million U.S. So. $80 million U.S.? Yes. Nevertheless, that's pretty good size. Yes, it was. If you go back to uh, you go back to the early 60s, uh, a company of $100 million was a good-sized company in the United States. 
you forget the impact of inflation. And it was fascinating that in various areas of the work, um, it seems to be a generation behind. A, a generation. generation of people. Generation. Uh-huh. So that's why I picked um, somewhere in the, in the 70s there. Right. Um, the, many of the attitudes toward the systems were that way. Walter, one of the things that uh, I think is very, very telling to me is this. The whole world of ex-colonialism, I think, has done an about-face. I was a student in the 30s, and at that time there was a book written by Catherine Mayo, Mother India. Oh, very famous book. Very famous book, a bestseller, which described a great many of the evils uh, that were a product of their... Uh, religion and of their backward ways. And students I knew who were of an Indian background at Berkeley uh, welcomed the book. They thought it was important that uh, these things be exposed and that India be brought up to the modern age. But by the 60s, when I did a great deal of uh, speaking at university campuses, at one time as many as on three a day, the attitude was that uh, it was bigotry to call attention to any of those things. And I had one person refer to the mythology uh, created by Catherine Mayo. Are they willing to face up to the very serious problems they've inherited over the centuries? Or are they still trying to whitewash things? This seems to have been, since World War II, the attitude of many of the ex-colonial groups. One politician I mentioned in the papers that it was expected that in Mahatma Gandhi's generation um, that with India's unique cultural heritage and with all the advantages they had um, that surely they would assume a place of leadership among the, the family of nations. And that there's been a great deal of disillusionment that I could tell from talking with people and in reading the papers that this unique cultural heritage that they're, that they're very proud of um, hasn't given them what they hoped it would. But I never heard anybody talk about fundamental change. So I would say the latter. Um, uh, you put it in terms of whitewashing, um, that's probably closer than... than um, well, you see, you have what is called Islamic fundamentalism now and Hindu fundamentalism as though there was an ideal past there that the white man shattered and therefore it has to be recreated. And I think this is creating international problems because it is dividing the world as it has not been divided for a long time. 
Well, Mahatma Gandhi had a great deal to do with that. Yes. <clears throat> he he wanted to go back to a bygone India. Remember the spinning mm -hmm. wheel? Yes. And all that. And much of the third world talked about their own native culture. What they wanted was a return to their original culture with all the white man's improvements. And unfortunately, that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You can't have both ways. One man wrote a book embodying the Gandhi ideal, Small is Beautiful. Yeah, Schumacher. Schumacher. And I was appalled at the extent to which that book was being used uh, a couple of decades ago in American colleges and universities, Still including is. yes, including Christian colleges, so-called. Well, of course, now we're seeing some other weird things. <clears throat> the the book Black Athena that you have. Yes. Uh, the argument by certain elements of the black population here that Greek culture and Egyptian culture was all Negro and that the Greeks and the Egyptians stole from the black Africans all the science of the West. Uh, I, before that, we had some strange figures from India who went throughout the West <clears throat> to the United States and to England, other countries, who were going to bring great philosophy to us. Yes. Not simply yoga, but all kinds of uh, Tagore and others. Mm -hmm. uh, for an awfully long time, the idea was that there was something spiritually superior about the people of India. And we do have today an invasion of Hindu ideas into the American society in the name of the New Age. Mm -hmm. The New Age cults are all Hindu. They're, yes. using, they're using English terms for Hindu concepts. This is Hinduism. And we have, uh, who was it, the, the uh, actress who claims to be reincarnated so many oh, times. Oh, yes, Shirley MacLaine. Shirley MacLaine. I remember that a friend of mine gave me this sticker, bumper sticker. It said, I strangled Shirley MacLaine in a previous life. <laughs> uh, but that's Hinduism. It's incarnation. It's, it's the uh, stair step toward nirvana or extinction, which is the goal. Extinction into the bosom of the deity so this has been a, a to a certain extent we have been affected by the colonial world it's a two way street I remember that when I was in Amsterdam noticing all the dark mixtures that came out of Malaysia the Dutch controlled Malaysia for 400 years and you see a lot of Eurasians in Holland. The uh, same thing is true in Indochina. And, of course, India, speaking English because uh, the English were there, but India had a great effect upon the British. And very recently I read in The Spectator, I think we were discussing it, where Enoch Powell said that... We taught India, he said, everything we knew, and then we pulled out, 
and we watched that balloon go up in the air and we hoped it would be able to fly. But he said, it now appears that it has fallen to earth. They are rejecting everything that we taught. And from here on, India will take its own course. Now, how this fits into a technological society, I don't know. Because to some extent, I think we're running into the same problem. We're continuing to progress technologically and we are regressing spiritually. I mentioned to you a few days ago a book newly written, which I have not yet read, but I read about the book. As you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson borrowed ideas from India cleaned them up, and then promoted them as a kind of higher wisdom. Oh, yes. <clears throat> and then Rabindranath Tagore, a Hindu poet, borrowed back the Hinduism of Emerson as the true Hinduism, as something noble and uplifting for all mankind, and became immediately very popular in the Western world for what he had done. So uh, we do have a synthetic Hinduism in the world of uh, culture and ideas and then a popular one on the bottom level that is far removed from that at the top. Well, I've run into young people recently who tell me that they are Buddhists. And I have not asked them what that means, because I really wasn't interested. But I was a bit surprised the first few times. When I ran into those kind of people at, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, they were typically Zen Buddhists, mm. and they described it as a philosophy and not a mm. religion. And um, I couldn't get too much beyond that, but... Last, a belief in nothingness, ultimate nothingness. Zen Buddhism is the negation of all meaning. That's why I think it's popular on university campuses. Well, it also puts it in the eye of the old folks at home. Yes. It's part of the, uh, what would you call it, the rebellion stage. Yes. Well, Buddhism is almost non-existent in India, the land of its birth, but almost everything else thrives there. It is interesting, uh, the Martoma Church goes back to the Apostle Thomas. It's a small group in India that has survived over the centuries and uh, some attempts have been made in recent years especially through England to revitalize the Martoma group because they have deep roots in Indian life and uh, to make them more than merely a traditional group hanging on to the faith of their fathers, but a vital force in that country. One thing that I found that I began to despair of in my time there was would Reconstruction come to India? 
And I began to feel rather hopeless when I looked around and I saw, even on the hotel grounds where I was, a little Hindu shrine. And when I saw, you mentioned the popular religion, that people processing around a bull wearing flowers and dancing a little bit in the various shrines across the countryside, um, how deeply that's embedded in their life and in every aspect of their culture. I found differences that I could only, that in my limited understanding I could only trace to the religion. Um, I felt, found myself feeling rather dismayed and disheartened when I realized how far there was to go there. That's yes. exciting to know that there are indigenous groups like that. Well, India is a great mission field. Apart from educators and doctors, Christian missionaries have not been permitted to enter. However, almost everything that is good in India has a Christian origin. A great deal of their agricultural advancement came through a Presbyterian missionary, Sam Higginbottom. They owe so many things uh, to the Christian West. Now, there is a nucleus of Christians there. Their number is slowly but steadily growing. Uh, the Church of England ha is very strong in some areas and a number of other groups. But uh, the new order in India has been very hostile to Christianity and the hostility is a part of its uh, hatred of the West and they feel that Christianity is an invasion from the West. Of course, they feel, like Islam does, that it is their duty to invade the West. But uh, if Christianity in the United States regains its faith and gains muscles, it can begin to influence Asia once again. Well, there's no question about that. As it is, the world is still dependent upon the Christian West. Yes. And those inside the Christian West who are not Christian are dependent on the Christian West. As a matter of fact, without the Christian West, they wouldn't be alive. Mm -hmm. Or they wouldn't live long. Yes because nobody else protects their lives. That's right. And that's something that you never hear. Yes, our medicine has done wonders for Asia and for Africa. It has extended the life expectancy of peoples greatly. And this was overwhelmingly done by Christian missionary doctors and hospitals. And with their disappearance, the life expectancy is diminishing. Certainly in Africa, it's become a major problem. Well, they actually drove the physicians and the nurses and the missionaries out and closed the hospitals and then ran towards South Africa to save their lives. Yes. Yes. 
I read not too long ago an account written by a Catholic woman, a writer, of her uh, travels in what was French Africa. And she stayed at places that had once been convents. Closed down now, and the work that was being done that was so outstanding disappearing steadily. So they're paying a price for their hatred of the West. Well, hatred always exacts a price. Yes. And uh, there's always a price when you will not face up to reality. Civil War now marks Sri Lanka or Ceylon. And I think the seeds of it are there in India and it will increasingly fall apart. It's quite a shock to the American liberals. They keep talking about the world's largest democracy. Mm-hmm. And they haven't changed their tune even yeah. since uh, the latest Gandhi has been blown to pieces. And with the dictatorship ended in Ethiopia, they're demanding democracy when the only thing, as Hilaire de Berrier has pointed out, that will hold Africa together is the return of a monarch. Yes. That's not something. Yes. Well, our State Department has never heard of a monarchy. They've never heard of religion. Mm-hmm. They don't believe in it. It doesn't yeah. exist. It's uh, it's true, they think, there are a few superstitious elements of the past remaining, but they're not important. Well, you have in uh, Ethiopia uh, diverse groups, as you do in uh, India. You have the... It's an empire. Yes. The ancient Hamitic peoples, the true Ethiopians, who are not black. Then you have the Arabs, and then you have the Negroid peoples, who are still very backward and looked down upon by the other two. And uh, uh, nothing has kept them together in the past save loyalty to the emperor. Only brute force on the part of the Marxist regime buttressed by the United States kept Mengistu uh, going this long. Well, let's see. Did you see any crowds or any of the candidates talking during the elections? Rajiv Gandhi spoke um, in Bangalore. Oh, did he? Um, He was delayed, and so he didn't arrive until midnight. Uh So I wasn't able to... um, uh, do anything there, but hundreds of people came and stood for many hours waiting, waiting for him to speak. Huh. Um, they seemed to, they talked about our beloved leader, Rajiv Gandhi, uh-huh. and um, uh, there were posters covering mo- many of the walls throughout the city center. It's a very big, important deal. Um, there were cases where reported in the papers where a number of devotees of various leaders would prostrate themselves before the leader. That was fascinating. Before the leader? Before yes. Really? Um, the ancient Salaam. Mm-hmm. 
There were some cases of that reported in the papers. Um, there were, there seemed to be, from what I could gather from the papers, an idea that these people were a messiahs of a sort. Mm. And yet many of them are extremely opportunistic and um, criminally oriented in many ways as well. So there's an inherent contradiction there. These are, I don't know who said it, but the oldest and the original form of government is a monarchy. Mm -hmm. And uh, Russia still has a monarchy. Mm -hmm. I mean, Lenin, Stalin, what's the difference between those and the Tsars? They're now trying to contend who's going to be the new Tsar. And I think India also. You were fortunate to get out before Rajiv was killed. Yes. I'm very grateful for that. Both of the major parties, the Congress and the BJP, agree on one fundamental point, that a hung parliament um, of the kind that has caused some problems for the last 16 months and brought about three elections within that short period, um, that a hung parliament is unthinkable and would be deadly at this point. And yet neither party is willing to give. And so you spoke about the problems in democracy. Well, there aren't enough people willing to agree at the moment to vote in a certain way that one clear voice can come about. It looks like the momentum may be with the BJP since that's where the young are. The Hindus, yes. Um, various foreign papers have called them Hindu fundamentalists. Of course, that's taking a term uh, from the West. What's the difference between a Hindu fundamentalist and a Hindu uh, anything else? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense. No. Everything is being cast in American political yeah. terms. But uh, it's a template which doesn't fit. That means that they're taking their Hinduism seriously. Yes, yes. Uh, Which they always have done. Of course. uh, What can you say about the people who... uh, How many Americans remember what the word juggernaut means? Mm -hmm. I remember when I was a boy in school, they had an illustration of it. Don't you remember? Yeah. That big machine where the worshippers would throw themselves under its wheels and they would... Crushed. They yes. would be crushed and then they would go to heaven or whatever. Yes. I remember vividly. Yes, that Even really. Even newsreels, they had it. Yes, that really, I've never forgotten yeah. that. No. I was also fascinated that the words usually reserved for various rulers are beloved, king. Beloved. Uh-huh. Beloved was quite a frequent term there. Um, one particularly beloved king from the beginning of the century had built a palace of Mysore that I visited. Um, It was also interesting there that, as the tour guide said, everything was imported there except the king. The chandeliers were from Czechoslovakia. The mirrors were all from Belgium. And most of the um, beautiful things were completely non-Indian and completely Western. That's what their great leader sought after. The guest house would have been a wonderful, beautiful European um, manor house of some sort. Um, but beloved was the term they used for this ruler. Well, maybe it's like our term, honorable. Well, what the Western thinkers, because they are anti-Christian and humanistic, forget 
is that rulers all over the world historically have had a religious meaning. And throughout Asia, the ruler has been a kind of a divine figure. He has had religious authority. We've tried to separate religion from politics. And the result is politics has become nothing but chaos. And it never will have stability uh, because it has been separated from religious faith. That's our problem also. It's the effort to take religion away from life. Yes. And it cannot be done without disaster. I mean, it's to be... Religion is to be taken out of public life, is to be held as a private thing. Well, then what point? what's the point of religion? Yes. So, I think the disintegration that you are seeing in various parts of the world is a disintegration we have helped create by our secularization of life. Well, we... Uh the Soviets carried it the farthest. Yes. Politics was the complete elimination of religion. So then politics pervaded every element of Russian life up until recently. <coughs> Art, music, literature, the factory, personal life, social life, everything had yes. a political meaning. Well, it didn't work. The French Revolution began this trend of secularization in our time, although you'd had it in the Renaissance. And I think Gaddafi is right. We have exported ruin to the world with our well, anti-religious stance. Well, by abandoning our own religion. Yes. Uh, the business of the Hindu is the Hindu Hinduism will at least solidify the majority of the Indians because they are in the overwhelming majority mm -hmm. and it may be a bloody business but the majority will prevail mm -hmm. so much for affirmative action because <laughs> Hinduism doesn't fit affirmative action no. that's true well, our time is about up. Would you like to make a closing uh, comment or two, Walter? I came back rather numbed. Um, I've heard of people being ready to kiss the ground when they came back. About a week after coming back, I actually felt myself ready to kiss the ground here. Um, being extremely grateful for the heritage that God has, has left us here. Uh, being a fairly young person, I um, many have been shaken in many ways by having seen things in India, and I find that things about the faith that once were abstract are becoming vibrant and real because I've seen a culture that is almost uninfluenced and proud of being uninfluenced by the faith. I also understand that a culture that that if we continue the direction that we're going, I um, am, have great concern for my children and what they would face and find that indeed Christian reconstruction is mm -hmm. of utter necessity. 
Well, thank you, Walter, and thank you all for listening, and God bless you.